Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're going to talk to Marcus and we're going to talk about how to raise capital or how to invest in growth companies without too much friction, without all these advisors and the paperwork and the meetings, how to do it more efficiently, how to do it like in the 21st century we should. On the other hand, it can be complex and it requires due diligence and it requires personal touch. So how do you combine all of these touch points? That's what Marcus is trying to figure out. And he's founded a platform called InvestX Capital. So we're going to travel to the US today, coincidentally to West Coast, but he's actually based in New York. So welcome, Marcus. How are you today? Hey, I'm terrific. Thank you for having me, Rudy. Really appreciate it. Okay. <laughs> no problem. All right. So Marcus, tell us about yourself. How did you get to do what you do today? I know you spent some time in trading, right? So how did you become an entrepreneur? I became an entrepreneur when I was really young, when I was 16 years old, going to high school. I was putting on high school dances. That was probably my first foray into being an entrepreneur. And then I ended up, when I went to university or college, I ended up running a painting company in the summer, you know, and was really successful at that. But I always loved the stock market. I had an uncle who was involved with the stock market. And it fascinated me. This was back in the kind of early 90s. And I loved the action of it. I love the fact that every day in the newspaper, you can imagine no one has those things anymore, but uh, where they published the score basically of how those stocks were doing. And so I fell in love with the markets. And so I'd you know, been an entrepreneur as a, as a teenager and then as a young person going to school and getting my education, but I always wanted to be in the stock market. So that's how, kind of how I got started. I went and actually worked with an analyst that was covering the public equity markets and worked with him for a couple of years and learned the business. And then a friend of mine, introduced me to this thing called this internet. And this was back in kind of 1994. And uh, I thought well, this internet's really cool. I didn't have, knew, knew nothing about it. It literally took me to an old computer terminal. It looked like it was something out of DOS or something like that. And it would show up and there was some information on there and, and you could get a whole bunch of different types of information. Now this is really early days, but I thought this has got to be a way for us to be able to put up and build a site on that internet quote that could publish financial information on the stock market. And so we started a website back in 1995 to basically help investors get access to what was trading. So instead of reading the Wall Street Journal or Investor Business Daily, where you get your 10 stories or your, your 20 stories a day, and you get some quote tables published in the newspaper, we actually were one of the first to start to actually publish once an hour only, but at the time, you know, what the NASDAQ top traders were, the New York Stock Exchange, and at the same time, the Amex, this is before they merged with the New York Stock Exchange. Um, but we started to publish that data and information. And so this was the start of a young person's career into being an entrepreneur and really being a part of what technology is doing and moving. And we ended up building a very large two-side network website, had about a million investors going there a month to get information on the public equity markets. We had analysts and journalists and financial tools like portfolios and charting systems, 
to help people get access to it. And I really do believe back in the 90s, for example, the market itself, in, in philosophy, I didn't really understand it right at the time because sometimes you have to look back to see it. But the philosophy was like, how could a broader group of people get access to information and not just have to talk to the broker? Because back in the 90s, I don't know if you remember this, Rudy, but back in the 90s, basically the brokers controlled the market. And as a result of that, and by control the market, mean they controlled information. So they had access to the trading pricing, but they also had access to how the companies were doing. They might have a Reuters terminal or Bloomberg terminal. And you couldn't get any of that because you basically could get your Wall Street Journal. And so they charged excessive fees, what we would call today, like 3.75%, 4% to trade. And then the market makers would take another eighth or another 16th at the time. And so it was kind of loaded up with fees. And so as a result, there wasn't that much market participation by most investors, right? And, and then you saw companies like us, which the, the company's called Stockhouse, came and provided information, Yahoo Finance and Motley Fool. And then they combined that with the discount brokers that came in. And then all of a sudden now information was relatively available. People could trade and the participation rates in the markets went up 10x, right? And that's really the power of technology and really understanding how technology can really change how a big industry, call it investment services or investments, can be changed by technology in a real fundamental way, which is obviously a big part of what you've seen, obviously, in, in your podcast or in your recordings here around fintech, right? How does technology really change and make things way more efficient? And so back in the 90s, we were original company doing those things to help create more efficiency. All right. I like that a lot. More transparency, more market participation, more competition. That also means that some of the effects that we used to study in the 90s in the university maybe are no longer there. Maybe they are still here. Some inefficiencies on the market of the markets, right? Can you tell us about your current venture, InvestX Capital? What does it do? How does it link to what you just said that you started doing early on? Yeah, so it was really born out of that same philosophy, which was sometimes when you're just deeply into something, you see the issues that exist in the industry, right? And so as we cover the public equity markets, the public equity markets started to become massively efficient, right? We started to see high frequency trading, computer systems were coming in there, making decisions faster. We saw the rise of hedge funds. We saw a lot of structured products go into the, to the equity markets. And so as we were in there covering the markets, we started to see that a number of these companies were staying private longer before going public. And for example, in 2013, Amazon had gone public the decade before at about a $450 million market cap, eventually went to over a trillion dollars, of course. Um, but Facebook was going public at $104 billion. So you're talking about something that was 200 times the size of Amazon by the time it went public. And when we looked at that, what we saw was it was basically similar to the 90s, where a small group of people controlled the market and we thought that's just fundamentally unfair. And those kind of what I call club institutional investors were Fidelity and Wellington and TPG and eventually Tire Global and Co2 and some other large funds like that. They were the they were basically saying to these private companies, hey, don't go public. We'll stroke you a check for 200, 300, 400 million dollars. Stay private longer. Almost like IPO kind of level financing, but private financing. We'll stay private longer. And what we'll do is we'll benefit and capture those last three or four years of your growth before the public gets to benefit. And we said, look, there's got to be a way for us to be able to figure out how to create access to those amazing businesses for people's portfolios before, you know, they go public. And so that was really what spawned Vestex was, could we, and I don't want to call this the Robin Hood story. It's not obviously a Robin Hood story, but could we help a lot of other people be able to get access to this amazing asset class instead of just these 10 club guys who are making all the money? 
And so that's how we started off. And so what we do today is we do a couple of things. Number one is we have investment products. So we basically do due diligence. We have a whole team. We get access to amazing quality companies. And then we allow investors to put smaller amounts of money into it. $50,000, $100,000. Obviously, they can put in $5 million or $10 million as well. But we allow them to put smaller amounts in so they can put to their add to their portfolio these amazing high-quality companies before they go public. Because the reality is 99.9% of investors can't get access to the IPO shares of these companies. You know, most of the companies we invest in are banked and IPO'd by Goldman Sachs and basically Morgan Stanley. They control like 90 plus percent of the market and they only go to their best institutional customers, right? And so, but when, as we started to make lots of investments and we invest in the most amazing companies like Airbnb and Spotify and DocuSign and SpaceX and Instacart, et cetera, what we started to find was that there's actually an industry problem in addition to getting access, right? And, and the industry problem is that if you want to participate in these companies in a secondary basis, so not when the company's raising money, but buy shares from an early VC fund who's expired or from an angel investor or from executives or employees or other institutional investors that have owned the stock for a number of years, but the company's still private, that's really hard to do. How do you get access to understanding what the pricing is? How do you get access to finding the other side of the trade? And so as a result, we ended up investing in and building a technology platform that basically helps to facilitate block trades in these securities on a wholesale basis. So it's an inter, it's called it's an interdealer market, meaning it's an alternative trading system and ATS. So you have to be a dealer. You can't as an individual participate, although we help individuals to participate through dealer licenses, but it allows basically an institution to be able to cross a trade. So to give you an example, if Tiger Global wanted to sell $50 million of Klarna, what they could do is post that up through their bank Citigroup. And then on the other side of the trade, you could have Jeffries that could represent Fidelity who might want to buy it, for example. And so they can find price discovery and they can find matching and make that market more efficient and therefore take some of the, let's call it ad transparency to it, but also take some of the margin out of it. Because today, because the market's so inefficient in the private markets, people charging 5% commission. The exact same thing that we rebelled against back in the 90s in the public equity markets is happening in the private markets. And so we're working the same way we did with Stockhouse the best X is to make sure that we can make the market more efficient using technology. I see. I see. Understood. So let's talk about some numbers, though, so we give it some perspective. So how much money have you facilitated or does go through your platform and how many investors and how many growth companies you facilitated investments in? Yeah. So to understand that, so we make the investment decisions. So we have an investment team. Because when you want to invest in these late stage companies, and, we, and let's just define that for your audience so they understand it. So if you think about venture capital, you've got the things you're most familiar with, which is seed rounds, maybe a series A for companies getting more traction. And then what happens is as the company continues to de-risk and grow, they get more capital, right? And so then you might hear it called a series B or a series C or a series D, right? Historically, before about 15 years ago, very few companies would go beyond a series C they would exit out through a trade sale or an M&A transaction, or they would exit out through the IPO markets or the public markets. As a result of basically some changes to regulation, which we could talk about separately, if you like, in the U.S. related to the Jobs Act, it allowed companies to expand their cap table without going to some of the reporting requirements that public companies would have. So instead of having 500 people in the cap table, they could go to 2,000 people, for example. This spawned a bunch of private capital coming into the markets. And so this is the some of the complexity of what happens. So when we talk about what we do, 
we invest in these late stage rounds. So we don't invest in early stage companies trying to figure out their business and their business model. We invest in the proven winners in the market that are just private still. But because the market's so inefficient, the private markets, we think there's tremendous opportunity to be successful in investing in them because the market's so inefficient. Whereas we joked a little bit earlier how the public markets are so efficient, I always joke you can't beat the Goldman Sachs computers, right? And so you might as well be index investor in, that, in a case like that. But the private market is the exact opposite. So one of the things that you have to do in the private markets is how do you get access to information on how the company is doing? Because we're not Vegas gamblers. We need to understand how is the company doing? What's the valuation of that company? How do we see the growth profile of that business over the next three years? How does it match up in terms of it exit out of the public markets? What do we see that return profile to be? And we think about how do we generate a 3x cash on cash return, for example, in three years? You have to have a lot of data and understanding of that business. But in the private markets, there's no requirement for anyone to give you that data and understanding. And so you have to build up reputation and you have to be able to work with the companies to be able to get access to that so you can do the right proper due diligence and underwriting before you make an investment. Of course, so, Marcus, but t- yeah. tell us about some numbers. So give us some quantification, if you can, at least in ranges. Are we yeah, talking so we've tens invested, of millions? Or, yeah, or we've invested over 500 million US mm-hmm. dollars in approximately, I'd say about 40 companies. Uh, we've made about 90 investments. And we've made some multiple investments in a number of those companies. And, but we've invested just over that with, with a value of over a billion dollars in terms of the overall valuation. But we've actually invested in terms of cash, roughly just over 500 million US dollars. And then the block trades, different case because block trades are 5 million, 50 million, 20 million. At any given time, any given day on our ATS, we probably have somewhere between 300 and maybe 800 million notional in that facility. So these are real dollars, real numbers. Our kind of our average investment for a company usually starts around five million. But we've invested as much as seventy million into a company. You know, I would say our average investment has probably been close to fifteen to twenty million dollars into a single company. And there's some exceptions to that. One of the things we love about these businesses is that you know, as they continue to perform, we like to invest more, right? And Palantir, which is a reasonably well-known technology company, trades in the New York Stock Exchange now. But we ended up making maybe five or six investments into that business over the course of about two, two and a half years before they went public. It was a great success. But uh, but one of the things that we did with Palantir, for example, is one of the problems that these issuers have is that they have a lot of small shareholders and they have a cap limit on the number of people they can have on their cap table without having to go into more disclosure, which they want to avoid public disclosure for competitive reasons, et cetera. And so we were able to take a lot of those people off the cap table by continuing to make multiple investments in the company. And in Palantir's case, I think we took about 40 investors off the cap table. So they might have had an early investor that wants to sell it. We would buy the shares. And we call these kind of odd lots. But odd lots are funny, like a million dollars, $2 million is an odd lot in the private markets. In the public markets, it's $5. <laughs> but these are some of the things that we do in terms of making these investments in these companies. All right. So what kind of growth companies have you invested in? You said, okay, it's late stage, pre-IPO. I get that. It may not be always just about inefficiencies. People stay longer private because they could. Back in the day, they had to go to public markets. And nowadays we had so much dry powder by VCs, they could have stayed longer private. But in any case, what sort of companies have you invested in? And maybe let's pick up some examples related to finance or financial services or fintech or technology? Yeah. So there's some key themes that we like, right? And, and part of that is understanding 
really thinking about the exit value of the business that we invest in three years from now or four years from now, right? And so themes that we, we love fintech, right? I'll give you some specific examples. We love marketplaces, right? Airbnb is a great marketplace. Turo, an amazing marketplace, for example. We like SaaS businesses, obviously, because they have such incredible operating leverage in their business, you know, recurring revenue. So there's, a, and we like some businesses that go through some transitions, right? Like one of the investments that we made in terms of marketplace closer to where you live is a company called Getir. And it's kind of like the Instacart over there in Turkey and the UK and Germany. We invested in Instacart, which we love that business. We're expecting it to exit next month. They filed their IPO yesterday. But I'll give you an example in fintech. So, you know, a company that we really like, Cross River Bank. The reason why we like Cross River Bank is because it's technology infrastructure. So it basically powers up a whole bunch of companies, basically, that that spend their money to build their brands. And they're the plumbing, right? The picks and shovels below, right? Making all those businesses work, right? And so they pay, basically power up lending and banking and payment capacity for a number of firms that then basically go out and spend, which I think is higher risk, a lot of money to build the customer base, right? And they've got clients like Stripe and Revolut and Affirm, right? Coinbase and Circle and Google and others like that, right? And so we love infrastructure businesses like that. We just love them. Faro Bank's another great example. It's a digital neobank, right? So it's working on serving underbanked Americans, right? Primarily millennials, some Gen Z, you know, again, free bank accounts. But there's a lot of people in America that really are underserved from a banking perspective, right? And, and we know that when we capture, when customers capture people young, right, they typically have a long time period that they stay with that organization, right? And so you build really long-term success by capturing them young. It's very hard to change someone that's much older when you got banking established. So that's another example. And then we have something what I call much more kind of high beta, which is Kraken, right? And when we looked at Kraken, we looked at crypto and trying to think of what was the best thesis for us in terms of from a deeply understood and felt that there would be massive change with the blockchain. And, and there was, but there's a lot of different ways to do that. And there was a lot of different risk levels of doing that. And so going back to similar to Cross River Bank, Kraken being infrastructure, right? So being exchange versus being an enabler or being a coin or something of that nature, right? So we thought would be actually the best way to participate with that. Now, it, it unfortunately mirrors the ups and downs of the crypto market very closely. But we like really what they've done in terms of focused on regulatory compliance, really focused on building their business from a profitability perspective. And so we, so those are give you some examples of the kind of companies. Now, we've invested and had exits in amazing businesses, like I mentioned earlier, like Airbnb and DocuSign. They also fit the same models, right? Marketplaces, SaaS business with DocuSign, for example. Palantir is a technology business. So it's basically security technologies. So those are just giving you a few examples, Rudy. All right, great stuff. Two things going forward. First of all, a question regarding your investment activities. The other thing is when you do work as a platform. When it comes to investing, you said that you invest in companies in late stage and sometimes they do need to consolidate their shareholder base, etc. So they are obviously happy that you come in and you can help them this way. But how do you actually get in? Because sometimes the founders, they you know, they love people who were there when they struggled, right? Once there is a proven product market fit, then they feel like now you're coming when we don't need you as much, right? So uh, how do you actually get into later stage? Is this a networking angle, reputation, combination of the two? How does this work? 
You've nailed it. It's really a combination of a few things. One is reputation, right? So do you have a track record of investing in these types of companies? Do you have references from other CFOs that you're a good shareholder on the cap table? But I always think of it and the old thing of WIFM, right? What's in it for me? To your point, at this later stage, these are the most sought after companies on the planet, right? And how do we, what's in it for them to have us be on their cap table and be an investor? And we always take that mentality, right? We're not going to be Fidelity and go write a $200 million check in the IPO, right? We're not going to, but we're also not going to be someone that wants to take a board seat. So we always try to add value. And part of the value that we add is we like to clean up that odd lots off their cap table for the company. As long as it's performing, we continue to invest in it, which is a real helpful thing for the CFO, for example. They may have an executive that wants to put their kids in school, needs some capital. And so they can give us a call and we can help facilitate that, right? And so those are some of the things we're always thinking about is what's the value that we can create. Now, as we build more portfolio companies and relationships, there also becomes some cross, you know, kind of introduction pieces. But also ultimately at the end of the day, these are amazing businesses run by the best entrepreneurs and leadership teams on the planet, right? And so we have to have reputation. We have to be able to make reasonable size investments, right? We have to be able to add value to them, like some of the things I've mentioned. And so it's a combination really of all those things. Now, from a criteria perspective, the way we look at it is we're really looking for kind of companies that are over a billion dollars in valuation. You know, there's a few exceptions to that where we get down to maybe as low as 500 million, but we do not invest in companies under $500 million. We're not investing anything that's trying to figure out their business models from, a, from our investment perspective. From an angel investor, myself personally, that's a different story. But from, a, from our funds and from our investment capital perspective, that's what we do. The other thing we look for is we look for something that typically is going to exit within three years, right? So we want to capture three years of growth. Because if you want to buy growth, you have to be in the private markets. It does not exist in the public markets the way it does in the private markets. There's very few large growing companies in the public markets. And so you got to be in the private markets. And so this is where you have to be. But of course, it's very difficult. So we look for companies that are growing usually 30, 40% off a big established revenue base. They're worth over a billion dollars that we can basically capture some of those returns back within three years. And so on a level, Rudy, you don't have to really be that smart, right? If I can buy a billion-dollar company growing at 30% a year and own it for three years, I'm probably going to make some money. But the problem is it's really hard to do, right? Because you have to figure out how to get information. How do I find shares to buy? How do I find the price I want to pay? How do we deal with all the complexities and the lack of transparency that exists in the private markets? And so we've built a long reputation of being able to do that very successfully. All right, absolutely. Makes sense. Now, let's talk about the platform side of the business. So. Can you give us some advice how to overcome the cold start problem? A lot of people would like to have a platform, but it's not that easy to get it off the ground, right? To, to build a platform as a tool, that uh, seems difficult, but that's actually probably the easiest part of the puzzle. But the more difficult one is how do you get the two sides of the market together? So how have you done it or how would you advise people to do it? Yeah. And there's really different elements to that, right? So if you go back to my Stockhouse days where we had a true two-side network, million investors coming, we had tens of thousands of people creating content. So people would come because content was being created. And the big problem with most of these marketplaces, for example, is you go and just use the content marketplace, financial content, where you go there, there's no change in content, so you don't come back, right? And so this cold start problem continues to exist in that basis. So One of the core things that's really important is to go, what we learned in building our marketplace with Stockhouse was go very narrow niche, right? And so build up content and then expand it. So let me just give you a theoretical construct for that. There's a number of biotech companies that trade on the NASDAQ, right? And let's just say that there's 50, right? And so what we want to do is we want to basically 
help to promote and bring in people to participate in the discussion related to those 50 so that people keep coming back because I can see there's content always on Pfizer, there's content on all these different 50 companies. And then what we do is we'll take another niche that has some relationship to it. So let's call it medical device companies. And there may only be 12 of those. And we'll layer them in and start to germinate that too. And then what happens, you start to pick up some momentum to it because you get this behaviors happening, right? And so if you think about that, depending on what your marketplace is, when your marketplace, you may think of something similar, which is a narrow niche that I could build capacity and strength in, right? That, that is functioning and then start to work to expand it. And I think people start too broad. And the reason why they start too broad is they usually don't know what the, who the niche is going to be ultimately for their customers. And so it's really important to be testing these things. And you can do these all manually. Our running philosophy used to be is that we're going to keep doing it manually until you need one and a half people to do it, and then we'll automate it, right? And too many people want to build technology without actually spending the time to really deeply understand the customer, his issues with them, what's in it for me, and, then, and what's the problem that I'm really solving for. I was looking at a young company yesterday that was looking at mining and blockchain and nfts and i was struggling with what was this problem that, that was the industry's missing right now that this solution is going to solve for right and so i think it's really staying focused on the problem you're solving for being kind of more micro niche and then as you build traction expanding from it and really getting close to customers i think those are really important elements of it i'll share one more example with you with airbnb and, and turo is very similar i'll share two examples with you so in Airbnb's case, what happened was they had the same problem, which is they had a number of listings in a city like New York, but there wasn't enough listings. So when people went there, they'd see, let's just, for argument's sake, let's just say they'd see 200 listings, right? There wasn't enough selection for a city like New York. And their kind of growth hack that they figured out was, well, look, there's a whole bunch of listings for apartments and places like that on Craigslist. What happens if we went and just ported all those, even if we had to duplicate them all and throw them all up onto Airbnb? And this was actually the thing that created the critical mass on both sides of the network. When people came, all of a sudden now instead of saying 300, they saw 3,000. And, and this created the traction. And because there's 3,000 more people came. Turo had a very similar, and so you saw in Airbnb's revenue, for example, it was basically like flat for five or six years and then it took off as they figured this out. Turo had this very similar thing. Turo is a marketplace for car rental. And again, different competition, the main competition being car rental, but also to some degree, you compete with Uber and other places like that, right? And so the revenues were also relatively flat from a number of years. And then they had a market change, which was COVID. And when COVID came in, the first thing was, of course, it hurt their business. But when all the car rental places sold off all their inventory to basically not go bankrupt, right? They were the only solution there. And then people had a great experience. Now, Airbnb really taught people to believe in that experience. So they didn't have to pioneer that because Airbnb said you can go to someone's house and you'd be safe. I can take their BMW and be safe. But then their business basically exponentially exploded from just over $100 million into we expect it to be just under a billion dollars. So over three and a half years, it almost 8x their business. And so this is where you see some other catalysts like that. Now, none of us can dream of a catalyst, obviously, what's happening with COVID. But I think it's sometimes you got to be there the right thing. And you're from a growth hack perspective, you're testing other things that basically ignite that marketplace. You're testing and testing. Absolutely. We talked about, in a way, some tips or growth hacks for entrepreneurs already. But if you look back at your entrepreneurial experience, is there anything that you would have done differently as well? Do you have any advice in that sense as well? Once you look back with the benefit of hindsight, I know it's a wonderful thing, but still. Hindsight is awesome. It is so awesome. <laughs> but I think the learnings are really important. And there's so many learnings. 
it really kind of depends a little bit on what stage of the business is at, right? And so I think that I, as I've matured as an entrepreneur, what I really come to understand is that talent is actually, people speak about talent, but when you start to actually have talent on your team, you understand how different your business runs. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, especially early entrepreneurs, like I, I did, we had a more simplistic mindset of what talent was. We had, didn't know what it looked like. We didn't know how to identify it. We identified it through resumes instead of trying to figure out what grit was. We identified it in the, with the wrong signals, right? And so I think that one of the things I've always thought about and continue to think about is how do we become better and better at being identifying, attracting best talent, right? And best talent for the stage of your business is not mean the most experienced executive out there for your 10-person startup, right? It means the best person for that stage of your business. So I think that was one piece. The second piece I learned as I grew up as an entrepreneur was the importance of values, right? And so that people could count on these values within the organization and that people that were attracted to those same values basically had a a kind of a, I wouldn't call it a rule set, but had a reason for being at that organization that meant that they could trust and count on the person beside them. And that ability to trust and count on the person beside that we will do business the same way together is a real galvanating way of building teams and building culture. And so when I started Vestex and I had a lot of success in my last couple of businesses, I started off with drawing out what I thought values were really important. And then we started to really incorporate them within the company. We interviewed for them. We had questions related to them. We had value panels of other teammates within the company that would go through that with new candidates. Every all company meeting, our ACMs, happen twice a quarter. At the end of it, we have people call out people that exhibited the values. And so they, you know, values only mean something if they mean something. And how you reinforce them, how you create opportunities for people to shine with them are really important, but they can be counted on. And the people in your organization can be counted on. And when you go back to starting with people first, values become the thing that galvanize some of them. So there's other things too, of course. I wish I spent more time looking at risk instead of being over-optimistic. I made some decisions faster. But I think if you can really focus on people and values, you're going to get a lot of it right. Absolutely. So technology is great. It's important. But the people sometimes are the most challenging, but also the most valuable, right? Just before we go, I have two easy questions for you. First of all, do you have any book or any other resource? Maybe it's a YouTube channel or a Twitter or X account that you like for learning, right? Anything that you can recommend as well. Yeah. So one of my core values, the company's core values is learning. And so I spend probably personally somewhere between kind of ten dollars and $20,000 a year on learning and reinforcing things. And so there's a couple of things to that. And I think one, one of the books I really like for companies that really want to scale up, it's an older book. It was called Blueprint to a Billion. And it really studied companies that went quickly to a billion dollars and some of the traits around those, which are really important, like having a big brother customer, right? And being able to leverage those things. So there's some practical kind of growth, I wouldn't call them hacks, but growth strategies to help you achieve that. Obviously, Lean Startup, if you're a young company in the progress, you need to read. Another book that I read recently that I like a lot is called Road Less Stupid. And it's got a great kind of quote at the beginning of the book by John Wayne, which says, life is tough, but life is tougher if you're stupid. And the context behind it is that you know, we make a lot of stupid decisions because we don't have a really good framework for thinking and dedicated time for thinking, and we don't look at risk, and we don't look at secondary attributes of decisions. And so I think as one of the things that I try to do more and more so is to try to create really dedicated times just to think deeply, instead of being having an overwhelming meeting schedule, for example. I started this off with our leadership team, which I encourage them to do, which I'm doing, which is I schedule one hour a week just to think about AI, 
to read about it, to look at it, because I think it's going to be so impactful in so many different things. I've now scheduled a one hour week just to have what I call deep thinking. So in my schedule on Thursday, basically is an hour for just deep thinking to take an issue to really think it through. And I think that's lost. We're, we're so focused on activity and doing things that we're not thinking enough. And then I would say the last thing on team development, Pat Lencioni is probably one of my favorite authors as it relates to team, the five dysfunction of the team. He writes a number of books, but he has a new book called The Six Types of Working Genius, which I think is really interesting in terms of helping people to really build up that team in a way that gets all the main functions of how a team works. So not the industry or the functions of the team, like accounting and operations and HR, but the different aspects of how people are in their highest zones of productivity and engagement. And so it's also very, really interesting. So those are three or four that I think are good. One last one from a podcast perspective. I know it's everyone's favorite all, already, but the All In podcast, I love a lot. I think the guys are really talented and bright and speak about some different issues, issues that are really interested in terms of venture and capital allocation and capital markets. And so I always love listening to those guys. They're awesome. Fabulous. So uh, thank you so much, Marcus. And uh, last question is, what's the best way to reach out and find out more about InvestX Capital? Yeah, brilliant. Look, we'd love to have some of your audience as our investment partners. If they're interested in, in accessing this asset class, they can go to investxcapital.com or they can go to investx.com. If they're an issuer, a late stage issuer, we'd love to talk to them. We think that we can add some value to their business through some of the methods that we talked about. We love investing in the best entrepreneurs around. So certainly reach out to us in either of those capacity as well. And we'd love to talk to you. Great stuff. Thank you so much, Marcus, and good luck to InvestX. Thank you so much, Rudy, for having me. It was really great and it was a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.